coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. For sure, a semi-sill leech would be number one. The bait fish brush pattern would be number two. Then I would have a popper for number three. Then I'd have just a simple old woolly bugger for number four. After that, I would probably have some kind of damsel pattern or some kind of a bug imitation or even my girdle bug I tie. It ain't really mine. I got it out of a book in 99. I just modified it that I tie for smallmouth on the yump club. That was Mark Middleton on his top flies for bass. Kayak fishing, tournament fishing, Idaho, and family today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. We just announced the winner of the Skeena Space School trip that's coming up later this year. We uh, One winner took that home, but we actually have some slots open right now. If you want to grab one of the uh, few paid spots we have to go on this trip, I'm going to be heading up to the Skeena Lodge with Brian Niska. We're going to be digging in. It's going to be an amazing trip. You can check in right now, wetflyswing.com slash school. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash Deddy to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy, D-E-T-T-E, to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, who is putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. When Ethan designs your net, it's his hope and goal to help you form lasting memories every time you're on the water. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly right now to get started. That's S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Stonefly online. Mark Middleton, expert tournament bass angler and veteran, shares his story today. We discover how to find bass on Stillwater, what it takes to win a bass tournament, and why he is not a purist in fishing. Mark also shares our family connection and how his family cared for my grandma for over a year when when Mark was a kid. This is a really amazing uh, amazing story, something we dig into today. Uh, I've known Mark a long time, way back to the old fly shop, and uh, and so we talk about that. A little family, a little fishing, and a little fun. Here we go. Making the family connection finally on this podcast. Here we go. Mark Middleton. How you doing, Mark? Hey, I'm great. Good. Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for putting this together. We've uh, we've been talking quite a while about this. I've been thinking about this one for a while because of uh, you know the connection we have with the family, and uh, and you've got a bunch of stuff going on. Project Healing Waters. You've got some a lot of different fishing interests. I want to hear about with bass and all that stuff. Uh, before we dig into that, let's let's just start right off the top here on the family connection. I want to hear. I'm doing. I've actually got another podcast, which is a uh, a family genealogy podcast. So I'm actually going through and interviewing family members, past and present. We just had a a family member who passed away recently, and and I'm you know using it as my opportunity to help document you know so our kids and our kids' kids can hear these stories. So you're you're part of that family, Mark. You know what I mean? And I want to hear that story. So could you start us off there? Like, what is the connection to my family, my dad, and all that? Okay, so uh, I had a stepfather named Leonard Sauter, who is your father's 
cousin. So I always heard of stories about a Doug Stewart fly fisherman. I had no idea who this fellow was. Um, I grew up and we actually had your grandmother, um, Grandma Stewart, living with us when I was in high school. And which Grandma Stewart was that? Let's let's clear it because I want to yeah. because I, Grandma. I don't remember her first name, but you don't. Was, I wonder. Well, there was two Marys. There was two Marys. So what year was this? What year would have this been? This would have been in the seventies. So like nineteen seventy something. Seventy seven, seventy six. Okay, seventy seven. So seventy seven, seventy six. So this was grandma and she was living with you in and where did you guys live? St. John's, North Portland. Yeah, so you were in St. John's, so seventy six. So that was about the time, right, seventy five. So that wouldn't have been my grandma. So that would have been my grandma's grandma. And how old was she? And it was his grandma or their grandma. Your yeah. dad. Yeah. She was uh so when I was in the Navy she passed at 90-something, so she had to have been in her 80s then. Yeah, so, okay, so she's in her 80s. Yeah, so that's right. So she's in her 80s, so that would have been, I think her name was Mary, too, so that would have been my, so the grandma that I really knew was Grandma Stewart, was Mary Stewart, my dad's mom. Oh, then she was the other one. She was yeah, so she grandma. was the mom, which is which is cool because so, and talk about that. So why, so my grandma, who was her, do you know that connection? I'm just trying to think, like, why was she living with you guys? What was going on there? Uh, there was something happened. I think we went down and got her from California. There was something happened down there in relationship with a family or she couldn't care for herself. So my stepfather, Bud, opted to run down and get her. And I, I rode down to California with my uncle to get her down, uh, I want to say Orange County, California. And I was young then. It had to have been 76, 77 in that time frame to go get her. So he can just care for her, he and my mother at that time, until you know she went home, you know, basically. So, so she was still alive when I went in the Navy in 1978. So, and she passed while I was in the service somewhere along the line there. 1978. Wow. Okay. And did you know? And there's a lot of questions I have here. I want to check in on just some of your family there. But did you know of? Uh, so here's a little bit of our family. I just. Um, I think I might've mentioned this to you, but so my dad, you know, is Doug Stewart. He was kind of the, you know, the infamous fly fishing, right? Had the shop for years out here. A lot of people, you know, might not know him now, but um, he had the fly shop. His, his mom was Mary Stewart, who we talked about. That's Mary Stewart, my grandma. And then his grandma was the one that lived with you. But Mary Stewart, my grandma, her brother was Jack Ingram. And Jack Ingram, did you know his story in the Navy? No, but I heard that name. I'm sure maybe from somebody, your father, whoever. Yeah. So Jack Ingram has this amazing story. I'll have to tell you about at a later point, but he was in the Navy and was a lifelong Navy. Like he literally, it's a really crazy story because when his dad was down the dumps or they had some hard times, I think they lost their house. They basically, he was like, you know what? We're moving down to the Rogue River. They lived on the Rogue River, like basically camping. Uh, and gold panning. They lived off gold panning for years. And Jack Ingram was, you know, was his son. And he said that was a very influential part of his life. Well, he went into the Navy not long after that. And because of his work ethic and everything, he worked his way up all the way up to the top. Right. And he was the guy, he was up in, um, up in Alaska during World War II. He was a big part of the reason why we kept, right, the Japanese from invading and all that stuff. So it's this really crazy story. There's a book written about him. And I just read the book. And so anyways, I throw that out there just so I, I don't know, I've never been in the the armed services and I know you have, and I just want to make that connection because it's pretty, I'm living through stories of like that and, and maybe today from you. Um, 
But so anyways, you know now. So we've got a little connection there. Um, but talk about my dad. How did you first meet my dad, who now is in his mid-80s? So when I got out, uh, so I went in the Navy in 1978 in June, got out after the Gulf War, hurt my leg. So I actually got out, disabled veteran. They were on a downgrade um, from the Navy or any service at that point, trying to get rid of people, extra people who didn't need after the Gulf. So I had a bad leg, honorable discharge, but on a medical. So I was uh, actually, I, I was in basically almost 15 years, went in E1, got on E7, which is a chief petty officer. I was up for E8, which I was not happy about getting out because they could have put me maybe on a shore duty, or I thought at the time, but it worked out pretty good when I took custody of my two boys um, at the time and got out. But anyway, I, I finally took the, took the leap when I started working. Um, I went out, I started visiting your dad as a shop out there on Halsey and Wood Village. Then at that time, he started poking away with me on how to tie flies. Actually, he was a huge influence on me on tying flies, along with a couple of his buddies. We can get into that later if you want. If not, that's fine. But anyway, he was the first part of my fly fishing adventure. You know, tying woolly buggers, the ugly ones I used to tie and all that. But I've came a little ways since then, obviously. But but I also do other fishing, too, as, as we, you had said. But so I met him there, and we got we actually got a connection and started getting bonded. So I think the, the term he says for me is a shirt-tail cousin, which we're not actually blood-related, but we kind of own each other in a different way. Gotcha. Shirt-tail cousin, yeah. And, and that's because – and Leonard Sauter, was, your, was that your dad or your uncle? Yeah, yeah, we call him Bud. That was my stepfather. Yep. Stepfather, gotcha. So Bud was your stepfather, right, and that was the connection. again. Bud was uh, related to – was he related to blood to the family? No, he was uh, to your family. Yes, he was your yeah. dad's cousin. Yeah, my dad's cousin. Yeah, my dad's cousin. Gotcha. So he was probably one of my. Gotcha. Okay. So now we make the connection. It would have been your second cousin. Yeah, my second cousin. Okay, awesome. So good. So that's it. So and I remember that because I was around there in that time. Uh, you know, I was in high school, and and I remember seeing you around. Right, you're around the shop. And who were the? So who were some of the other people around there? You were around the shop in that time. That was in the early '90s, mid '90s. Well, you know, at certain times, obviously, I met Jeff, your brother, and Chris. I know both of them. And then at the time, I don't remember a lot of people, but that's where I met Jim Teeny. I met, oh, yeah. uh, like, Don Stewart, or Don Stewart. Um, anyway, Don from River City Fly Shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Don, uh, not Don Stokes, but yeah, Don. Nelson, I'm sorry. But anyway, he uh, he he become another influence in mine, and, you know, he, he was a great guy to me and treated me well as your father. So the same. Um, but those two guys, those three guys were pretty much influential on me to start fly fishing. That's right. So the project healing waters that came later, when, when did you find out about, or were you, did you know about that pretty quick in that time? Yeah. So in 19 or, or 2014, I was already tying at the Albany fly show. And then, so I, I, I heard there was a veteran program that was somewhere in Portland and spread out through the state, different programs in different locations, the same program, obviously, or actual the same program. And then, so I met um, a couple of the head guys, Project Killing Waters from Portland, Oregon, and that ran the program. And then I started getting involved. So as the time went on, then I started helping veterans tie flies and go fly fishing uh, along with the program. You know, when the COVID hit, it kind of petered out a little bit, but it came back online. So I'm back re-engaged effective now. That's right. And and so they're in the Albany shows back and 
So what are you looking? So re-engage, what are you doing, looking at doing this year, next year? Helping, helping veterans tie flies and fish when we have, uh, like I've been invited to, uh, the upcoming programs coming up as far as taking like eight, 10 veterans out fishing. And I actually go out and I help them, you know, tie knot, cast flies, um, provide them with flies. I tie extra flies to take with me. I'll show them how to do those anytime they want to. And then obviously I got a big fly space here. So we don't have to always go to the locations where they, they have the programs. They can come here and tie as well if they wish to. Oh, nice. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, you're fully involved in the, and that's a great program, obviously. And, um, I mentioned we had Bo Beasley on recently who wrote a book, um, that's coming out. I think it's coming out this month on some stories of people who were, you know, influenced by the project healing waters, right. Who a lot of these stories you hear about it, it really saved their life. I mean, was that kind of for you the same thing? Did you run into it or were you kind of already on a, on a good track by the time? So fishing in general for me is like a church. Um, so I grew up uh, with there were six siblings or five siblings, and I had two halves, and we were poor. My dad worked at Armour and Company in Portland here. My mom was a meat wrapper for a while, but it's like we were we grew up kind of poor, and then we went out fishing. All the dysfunction and things that created from family that it was my church and my serenity. I still love the sound of a red winged blackbird, of all things. I when they when they sing, it's just it's heartwarming for me. But then, so as far as the veteran stuff goes, it, it was designed by uh, Ed Nicholson, who I fished with in Alaska on a trip that I went on uh, with Project Dealing Waters. And he's a nice guy. He was a Navy captain. <laughs> but he, uh, but it's uh, designed to help veterans with their psychological and physical disabilities through fly fishing. And it actually works because when you're out there, you're not thinking about the world's problems. You're thinking about how the water sounding, the red winged blackbirds singing, um, just the beauty of being out and, and just the nature and the fresh air and smelling the, the pines and the firs and the, the junipers and things like that. You know, so it's actually, it, it's healing because you're not hearing noises. You don't hear the, the background noises of war or being at battle stations or, you know, being shot at for the ground guys or me, I was on ships, so that's pretty confined. Or, you know, when you're at battle station, you don't know what's going on. You got to kind of wing it. Right, right, right. You got to wing it. Yeah, so you were on a, and you were on a Navy ship for most of your career? Yeah, well, well they separate a little bit. So I was on four ships, two shore commands, four and a half Westpac deployments, um, Pacific, Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf. So there's always hostile waters, just like the ground guys are always in hostile environments. You know, it's all different, but the same. You know, some guys have it a little worse than others. Some guys stay at home. We all sign the same paper, you know, to give up our life for our country if, if needed. But some guys feel guilty, you know, not going over there and doing what I did or other guys. But then again, they sign the same paper. You don't always have a a call on where you're going to get stationed so they kind of put where they need you right 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 yeah so and what is that in that that navy when you're on the boat is that uh, i mean it's just probably like i mean how, how is that how do you get used to that when you're on a boat for a long period of time well at first you're not i mean just you, in the birthing areas you got three bunks you got one near the floor or the deck and then you got one in the middle and one on top and then you got usually generally 40 to 80 people per berthing, depending on the size of the ship. Carriers, you got 3,000 people. So it's wow. loaded. That's 6,000 when you get the air depth. So it's almost 6,000 people on an aircraft carrier. 
So it's like pretty confined. When you go to battle stations, it's kind of comical. Everybody jumping out, trying to get dressed and get into your stations. Oh my gosh. Wow. They're always moving. So how does that, so you're all, I mean, 3,000, 6,000 people, it sounds kind of like amazing and crazy. So when they go to battle station, literally people are jumping up and what, within like 30 seconds, you got to get to your station? Well, I mean, 30 seconds because you, you can't. But the thing is, it takes you that long to dress. I mean, you know, usually, you know, when you usually got your, your pants or your trousers hanging off your rack or whatever. But if you're in hostile waters, you're in wartime cruising anyway. So when you're jumping out of racks, everybody's jumping out at the same time, except the watch guys because they're already up. Well, you got to get there as fast as you can in case you get, you know, we, you train for that. You train for fires and, and water damage and how to plug holes and right. you're always training. So the thing, the analogy I tell people that it's like Bruce Lee back in the day, he says, I don't, fight. they hit all by themselves. It's the same thing. We always wonder why we train so much, but when you, when the stuff comes down, you do not think about it. You just, it's an automatic response. Right. Kind of like, uh, well, I hate to make analogies, but kind of like fly fishing or like anything, really. Like the more you do it, right, the more you practice at your casts, the better it becomes more like you don't have to think about it. No, that's perfect. And that's exactly right. The more you do it, the, the better you get at it. You know, the same thing I tell the veterans, I say, you guys can come to these programs, but if this is all you're doing, you're not going to get super good at it. You got to kind of do it at home. You got to kind of do it, not just here. You know, some guys rely on maybe going to an appointment, maybe going to try to get what they can get out of it. But unless you do it on the side at home or with friends or things that you and I do, that you'll never get good at what you're doing, especially for that's right. Did you guys ever have any of those uh, like real life things out there, like a whole like water or fire, all that stuff? Oh yeah, you always have fires. Ships always have fires. Oh really? Oh yeah. There's always some kind of mild fires, or there's always electrical fires, or you know, especially the older ships, the newer ones. You know, it takes them a while to get there. But I was on some buckets. That's what we called the rusty guys. And I'm telling you, there was always something going on. No kidding. Wow. So fires on the ship. Yep. Gotcha. Nice. Well, talk about, so you've got some fishing. I know you've, you know, bass is kind of one of your loves and all that stuff. Talk about what that looks like throughout the year. What are you doing out there for fishing? So bass is my love. So, you know, I was a purist for, after I met your father, and you know, I was kind of a, trying to be a purist for 20 years. I kind of cut my throat on that for me, not for other people. You know, the guys that want to go chase steelhead for that amount of time to get one. Hey, that's commendable as heck. I just can't do it. I got, I got to catch fish. That's just, that's just what I do. But I, I fly fish for bass, depending on what time of year it is. But I also have got into kayak fishing Northwest, which is a kayak bass um, thing that goes Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And I can, once you sign up, you can fish all the tournaments you want. And you can use fly or gear. You know, people just think that it's all gear. It's not. I did tournaments straight fly fishing. And I've hung with I've hung with those guys with flies. You know, I've been you know, I've finished in the middle, I finished in the top ten, I think, once with a fly rod. And you know, you got forty people plus usually in these tournaments. So it's not too bad. Well, that's amazing. So what is your so let's dig into that a little bit or a little more on the kayak. So what is do you have like like ten kayaks or do you have one that's just awesome you, you love using all the time? Well, I actually have I have two predominant kayaks that I use. I have a Hobie. Um, uh, uh, it's kind of a, it's not a pedal drive. It's called a mirage drive because it goes sideways, but you got a reverse and a forward and I got steering 
So I actually take that. You can take them in the ocean. I haven't done that quite yet. I'm invited all the time. But I do go on the Columbia, the Willamette, um, all the big lakes in, in that, you know, and using the Hobie. And you can put like a, a crate in the back and carry I think I got my eight rods. And then if I'm not taking rods, I can, I got it rigged up to where I can take six fly rods and I set them up different depths. You know, when I fly fish to the Columbia for smallmouth and stuff, I'll take uh, different sinking lines. I'll take a 24 foot, a 15. I'll have a, have a dry line. I'll have a um, intermediate line and maybe a couple other lines set aside, you know, that I might want to use. And they're all rigged up when I go out there, different flies. But then again, I do gear too. Like right now, you know, it's hard to get a fish to catch deep enough to get a fly because they're lethargic. So if you use gear, you're going to be more productive, I think, at this time of year. Because the season started March 1st for season longs. There's three season longs I'm signed up for, but I'm not going to start fishing yet till after Albany. I'll be tying down there in Albany. So if anybody wants to say hi, I'll be there. Bear Vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. This in turn keeps your food safe, keeps the bears safe, and keeps you safe. I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. I had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. And when I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool. This thing is legit. It definitely is one of my, this might be my favorite feature is, is the camp stool. You know, I love a good, a good chair out there. Check in with the crew at Bear Vault at wetflyswing.com slash Bear Vault. That's Bear Vault, B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T. Okay, back to the show. What is the, the kayak, so kayak fishing Northwest, what do these tournaments take us to a tournament? What does that look like? Are you fishing mostly the columbia or all over the place so all over the place so there's a schedule that's put out every year um marvin forte who runs kayak fishing northwest actually owns it i believe at this point um he schedules idaho um five live events every year and then five in oregon and five in washington there's also a sixth one in oregon which is fly fishing only this year it's it'll be at uh davis lake wow davis that's amazing yeah, it'll be a fly fishing only event in kayaks. Anybody, anybody, it's an open. So you don't have to sign up for Kayak Fishing Northwest to do this. And any questions, they can get a hold of me or Marvin Forte with Kayak Fishing Northwest. And it's going to be a great event. I'll be there. And we got a sponsor, Portland Fly Shop, sponsoring that event for us, uh-huh. which is going to be fantastic. But also, we don't just have day events. So they're spread out. Every month starting in May, we have a day event per state. 
and you can do any of them if you've signed up with Kayak Fishing Northwest. The other thing is we do monthly events too, which are kind of online where you take a picture, send it, and we do that anyway, but you just, you can fish the whole month with no pressure. You can fish anywhere where it's a legal public boat launch, public lake, public pond. You can't fish, you know, private stuff because not everybody's accessible to that. Gotcha. Wow. So this is cool. So Marvin has, it sounds like he's got this set up for lots of live events and even the online stuff trying to get basically everybody, like even if you can't get to an event, you could still play the game and get in there. Yeah. I mean, if you can't go on the day ones, you can darn sure sign up for the month long ones or the season longs. Season long goes from March 1st to, I believe, the end of September. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in three of those actively right now, but I haven't fished yet. I'm just getting everything ready to go. My fly boxes are pretty full because like I said, I don't just gear fish. I, I got a, I got a love of the fly rod and, but then again, I want to compete at the same time. So. Gotcha. And is this similar? How similar would this be? I'm not sure if you've been out to some of those, like the bass tournament, right? The big bass tournaments out towards the east. Uh, is this similar to that where you guys are wearing kind of sponsored shirts and all that stuff? Or is it more laid back? I mean, you can. And actually, some guys do. But yeah, it, it's pretty. And there's kayak fishing pro tournaments, too. You know, so it ain't just we're kind of not, I guess you're kind of, I guess if you're making money, you're kind of pro, but you're kind of not, but we're the minor league of that. But there's actually like even Mike Iconelli, the big bass guys do kayak bass tournaments too. Oh, they do. Yeah. They do both. So yeah, but, and this is kind of in that realm and there are big events that do come here. I think we've got a, a native power thing again, uh, which will be in September, Umatilla, the big pool up there in the Columbia will be up there. And I think there's two states there are going to fish Washington and Oregon on their live events. And then at the same time, there'll be a power hour. Every hour, there'll be a big fish um, prize. And there'll be, I think it's unlimited on how many you can catch, but they got to be, I think at that tournament, 14 or 15 inches maybe per fish to count them. So there's, there's things on our onlines, it's got to be 12 inches or bigger to count it. But normally by the time that season's over, you're up in 17, 18, 19, 20 inch fish anyway. You know, three or five fish you're counting, or you know, the season long as you get the, the top five largemouth and the top five smallmouth. In our case, the longest five of each species is what you count or what they'll count. They automatically call as you send fish in. Oh gotcha. And and how do you send fish in? Do you take a picture or how does that look? Yeah, a picture on a board. So we have a, a catch board, which is 26 inches long. It has like a fence. You got to put your fish up. It'll be on the left side or port side of your mouth. And then you got to, you can't, your mouth's got to be closed. You can't cover the eyes. You can't put your fingers under the gill plate and you can't touch the tail. And we have identifiers with codes on them. So they know which, who you are basically and what tournament you're in. And they, they'll score it that way that's cool right on so this and it's all bat usually what you do is are these tournaments mostly bass or there are other species i mean they do other species but you know like they do redfish down south and stuff like that but for me it's bass you know and i i think there's walleye ones too um from from what i recall so yeah yeah i see okay so and the, the idea with the kayak fishing is that it basically just takes out the the power boat, right? It's just more, is that kind of the idea that it's just makes Yeah, the it thing for me, it's less maintenance. I, you know, I don't have a place for a boat anyway. And at my age, I sure as heck don't want one. 
um, for the maintenance and the motors and doing the salt. You got to run them out and all the other stuff that goes along with that. But we do have to register them if we put motors on them, which they just allowed this year. Oh, really? Motors on kayaks? Yeah, we can put motors on them if we want. Kind of takes away from some of it, but I voted yes to give everybody an equal field because before that I was just a disabled people, which I qualify for too, but I didn't think that was fair for me to do that and run around circles around these guys that are tired. But now, you know, I voted yes because if I opt to get one, I can. I mean, I haven't pulled that trigger yet, but I can if I want to. Right. And these are, you know, is this more like trolling motors? Yeah, like uh, they got like torpedoes and and Newport, and you can do uh, I don't know. There's there's the motor ones or the Minkotas make a lot of them for kayaks. It's expanded pretty well, way beyond what I thought when I got one. So yeah, and are you using all the um, like the uh, the uh, sounders and stuff like that, fish finders on? Yeah, I have a fish finder on mine now. Yeah, some guys are. These young guys, they crack me up because they got these big ones. You know, I just got a little one. I use it basically just for depth and, and, and water temperature for me. I mean, I can go get a bigger one with side scans and all that, but I really don't want to do that. Not for me anyway. I'm just, I want, I'm having more fun than I'm taking it serious. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the naming, um, you know, we have Phil Roy, who's kind of the, he's our still water guru, you know, more, he's more focused on trout and stuff, but he's doing he's hosting episodes now for us uh, on a separate series and uh, and he called they call them sounders mainly because they're not just about finding fish right because a part of it is finding structure you know maybe if you even don't see the fish things like that do you find that when you're using it you're looking for other things on top of just the fish absolutely you're looking for a hard bottom especially like certain times of the year and then if you're around a lot of weeds you can see that kind of stuff and then you know like you can kind of See if you can figure out if it's a log or whatever's underneath you. Um, yeah, and some of it's really defined. You got to spend the money for the real high tech ones, but some guys have them on kayaks, and you can see a lot of stuff down there, depending on what you're using. Yeah, exactly. Well, that you mentioned you were you finished in the top, you know, kind of I don't know what it was, top ten or in that range on a tournament. Can you take us to that tournament and talk about like paint that picture of what it looked like? You know, the whole thing. I think on that particular one, I think it was like. Uh, I think that was, where was that? That was in Idaho. I believe oh, really? Little P, little P I think I was in the top 10 in that, that in that, in that realm there, or as close to it. The Little Payette, so this would be like the Little Payette, like a reservoir or a lake or something? Yeah, the Little Lake. It was out of, uh, where the heck was that? Lewiston, I think. Idaho. Oh, Lewiston. Do you remember that pretty well? Like, can you talk about how, you know, that, that win, is that like a day-long thing week? Actually, I'm sorry. That was that one was McCall. I had it mixed up with another one. I was thinking of uh, another one, but that was McCall, Idaho. There's two Payette lakes there, and I think I was right close to the top ten there in that that tournament with flood. Yep. What what is that tournament? Can you take us to like the start? So do you guys just start like day one, like first thing in the morning? Is there like paint that picture? What it looks like? Yeah. So actually. I, most of the time they're out there before it gets daylight. So we have lights on, on our kayaks. We have, you have to have a 360, no matter where you're at in any water, you have to have a 360 light. Some guys have port and starboard lights, which I'm not sure if that's required or not, but some guys have them. And then, so you get out, I think it's a half hour before daylight or something of that nature. You get out there, everybody's at the dock, or sometimes they allow you to have, 
more than one dock you can launch from, but you got to check in and out. You check in and say, I'm here, I'm going in, and then you check out when you're done with the tournament. And normally it's an eight-hour tournament. So we get up in the morning. Like there, we were up like three in the morning. I think we were in the water by 4.30 because you got to drive from wherever your campsite is or whatever to get to the launch. Then everybody's at the launch trying to get their kayaks ready. Some guys have motors, some don't. And then you got all this gear you got to put in there, rods and things. Then everybody's waiting at the launch for the shotgun start, they call it. Sometimes it's just a whistle, not actual gun. But but once that happens, it's time to go. And then you usually have a half hour after launch to where it's lines in, where you're looking at your clock, you're looking at your watch, you're looking at your phone, say, okay, it's lines in, then you can start fishing. Usually you're starting fishing before you can even see. (laughs) So it's kind of it's, and it's like, how do I, how am I going to take a picture of this fish if I get one? And normally I'll wait till I can see before I even start fishing, but I'll actually get to my spot I want to start at. That's the whole idea. You get a half hour. So you've already done research about the lake. You've already fished the lake. Yeah. Normally they give us a, a practice day the day before up until like 11 o'clock in the morning or whatever uh, Marvin dictates. But normally, and then he's got a couple of helpers too, Jim Davis and then another fellow in Idaho. But it's like you'll have a practice day the day before. And then a lot of times it's off limits the week before. So they don't want you to go in there and disturb the fish. So the other thing is they don't want to bother the fish too much as far as putting too much pressure on them. You want to catch them, but you actually, you know, let them go as soon as you can. So it'll put them, we can't, we don't keep fish during tournaments, even other species. Because, you know, it's just, we just don't. It's all catch and release photo and release them right right that's cool so so when you go out to that first day and you're exploring I mean, what are you looking for like in preparation how are you finding the fish how do you know where you're going to start the next day well for me it depends on which species i'm chasing sometimes they have both like largemouth sometimes three they have sometimes they have small mouth large mouth and spots we don't have a lot of spots in oregon i think uh, one of the lakes i know about is uh cottage grove lake they have spotted bass, which I've never caught one that I recall. I mean, I, I might have caught one and thought it was a largemouth. I don't know. They're kind of similar. But I, I pursue smallmouth most of the time. I mean, if, I, if I'm if i in a tournament, and that's what I like to catch more than largemouth. But if it's a largemouth lake, I'm looking for cover. I'm looking for uh, weed lines. I'm looking for grass. If it's smallmouth, I'm looking for rocks and hard bottom. That's just what I'm looking for. They love rocks. Rocks heat up quicker than anything in a lake. So if you're, if, if like early in the season, you look for the rock structures or I did. And this was early. Was that McCall one? Was that earlier in the season? No, that was like mid season, but it was still kind of chilly in the morning, but it was actually really nice in the day. Gotcha. So that's it. So finding structure. And then when you're in there, when you're doing the tournament, so you go to these spots that you remember, and then how do you get down to the level? Let's just take it. Was, was McCall, was that mainly smallmouth or was that both? That was that was smallmouth for sure. Yeah, smallmouth. So when you're when you're going for smallmouth, like so, you know where you think they're going to be. Then how do you get down to the level? How do you find the fish? Uh, well, you you kind of you can see fish on your graft, um, but then again, a lot of times I'm just winging that anyway, because I I kind of you kind of know once you find it's searching. Like if if you're using like even flies, you let it drop to the bottom, then you try midline water depths, and then you try the top water and see where you'll get a strike. And once you get that strike, you kind of hold in there until they quit doing that. 
or even if you're using gear, you know, you got, I got different crankbaits on different depths that I use. I love the DT series, which is by uh, Rapala, which you got a four, six, eight, 10, 20. You can use that series and cover all the column. And then I use, you know, I put a clip on there so I don't have to keep retying. So you just clip one, right? But usually I'll carry, if I'm using that kind of stuff, I'm usually got three um, crankbaits tied on different rods anyway. I see. So that's cool. So you got to cover And then in that tournament, did you have a deal where you had a fly rod and, and the spin rods on there? No, that sometimes I just take fly rods. I say, you know, I'm going to have fun today. I'm not going to stress about it. I'll just take fly rods. I had four fly rods on me that day. Gotcha. Perfect. And, and, and then you had some luck. So what, what was that like? So you started catching some fish and then must be a wide range of sizes and things like that. Well, it was slow that day. Not a lot of people got limits. You know, it's like when we do those tournaments, it's five fish, but not everybody catches five fish, you know, if it's slow. But some there's some days when everybody catches over 30, 40 fish. You know, one, we were at Billy Chinook one time, and they're all dinks. They're like 8 to 10 inches, but some guys caught a couple 14s and 12s, and they won the tournament. And I used flies exclusively that day, too. And I'm up to caught over 40 fish. Easy. Landed. Not the ones getting off. Just you know, like semi-sale leeches. Yeah, that's just so like, and back to that, McCall, so you're fishing that lake, you're fishing with flies. What what type of flies are you fishing, and are you just doing, like, what's the technique? So, it, well, it's like, I don't troll in a kayak very often, so it's usually strip a one one two or a one one two one. There's just, you find a cadence that's going to work for the fish. And at that particular tournament, my success was completely on semi-sale leech. It's a real easy pattern to tie. Um, and I was just hammering them on that, the fish that I caught. I didn't hammer them. I, I mean, that was a bad call on that. But but at Billy Chinook, I did. I hammered him there on a semi-sale. But as far as pit, it was on a semi-sale also. But then again, I do some bait fish patterns that work well in the Columbia. So you got to pick and choose what flies. That's why I take five, four to six rods out in the Columbia with different lines and different flies. So the, the brush fish or bait fish brush or whatever, however the heck you say it. But anyway, it's not a hard fly to tie. And in, in the Columbia, they like that. Okay. And and that's, and that would be over. So what would be your flies to say, uh, you know, small mouth bass, large mouth bass, what are your, say your top five flies that you'd be using out there for smallies? Okay, for sure. A semi-sill leech would be number one. Then the, br- the the bait fish brush pattern would be number two. Then I would have a popper for number three. Then I'd have just a simple old woolly bugger for number four. And then after that, I would probably have some kind of damsel pattern. Actually, I do. I wouldn't have one. I do have one. I have dam- a damsel pattern or some kind of a bug imitation or even my girdle bug I tie. It ain't really I got it out of a book in 99. I just modified it. Then I tie for smallmouth on the umpaw, but it works too in Columbia. And it's just a simple girdle bug with different colors and it works great. So those would be my five. That's right, the umqua. And so now we're getting into my realm that I know a little more. That's that's one I fish. What how is the how would you say fishing like the Columbia or that payette or the umqua? Is the umqua about the same or easier to catch fish in? No, the Umqua is way easier to catch fish in. But the Umqua is a number thing, like the John Day. I can go there and catch, and without exaggeration, 100 fish a day if I want to. Um, normally, I got people with me, kids, grandkids, veterans, 
fly club members that I'm helping. So I just don't pursue it. But, but if I'm like without pressure from helping people or that, I'm catching a hundred fish a day if I want to. But as far as the Columbia, the thing about the Columbia that's better than the Umquas size, you're going to catch, I mean, they're averaging 12, usually 12 to 17 inches. And you're going to catch that 18, 19 and 20 periodically. And then as far as payette, I don't know if I'll ever go there again. It's a long haul for me, but the fish were, I, I think uh, the nice one I got was like right around 17, I want to say, 16 and a half, but they were fat. But again, there's nothing that beats a Columbia in Oregon, in my opinion, as far as smallmouth. I know there's some in lakes, and I know that Hag Lake holds a smallmouth record in Oregon, I believe still. And I know it's, they're pretty big in there, and I've caught big fish in there, but I haven't caught consistently the same fish I catch in the Columbia River. Today's episode is sponsored by Tokens Fly Shop. Tokens Fly Shop provides superior quality products at a great price. They have also a great YouTube channel that you can check out right now with uh, new fly tying tutorials each week. Tokens also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support... Uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin and the family uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool, a great local fly shop. Togans is also offering their fly tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Togans pack. And I recently made an order through Togans and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you have, ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on customer service, and it's time for you to check out uh, Togans Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com Togans right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. That's Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. So, and then what about on largemouth? So are you doing equal amount of tournaments with largemouth versus smallmouth? Yeah, so they bounce it around. And then even on the online, they'll have a smallmouth month and they'll have a largemouth month. They'll have a lake lunker month, which is usually largemouth, but there's smallies in there and in, in that type thing. And then, but I don't pursue them as much unless I have to score them on my tournaments, which I do in the onlines or the, the season long. So I'll be going like the Hag and Drina and the Coast Lakes hold large mouth um, and not small mouth on, on the Coast Lakes. And maybe they put small mouth in there. I'm unaware of it, but that's where I'll go to get uh, large mouth is usually the coast when it warms up. Okay, perfect. And, and for this, uh, for the kayak fishing Northwest, what's the next event coming up or the next few events this year? Well, there's a, actually a training event. I got the book in front of me. I'll open it up here. Um, so there's a training event coming up at Hag Lake. It's called the Season Kickoff. So anybody that listens to your podcast here can can do this, and it's an, it's an open. And then you just go through um, Kayak Fishing Northwest and sign up. I think it's like, I want to say 35 bucks or something. But you, then you get paired up if you're a rookie, a new person. You get paired up with a veteran guy, and you go out with him. And I think for that term, it's like the best three fish or two fish something like that but i actually the first one i ever did with that i won which was with a guy named kenny which was a good kid and we had fun i got lucky it was another real slow day at foster but anyway it's on um, april 8th 
at Haglick. Right around the corner. Yeah, so it's pretty close. And that'll be the opener, which is the veteran with a new guy or a new woman or a new lady. Um, that's what that'll be because we have females as well, not just males, and everybody has a great time. Yeah, that's sweet. That's really cool. So, and then, but the, the next one I'll actually be in would be probably my first one will be probably Darina. So it'll be Darina Lake on May 13th. That'll be my first tournament because I probably won't do the one in April. Yeah, May 13th. So these are, are these kind of every month of the year? Are there, are there like 12 events? No, well, there's five events per state. Per state. Per season. Yeah. So it starts, it'll be May. June, July, August, September, those five months will be the, the, the day ones per state. And like I said, uh, we added the Davis one after Crane Prairie in August. So that'll be the fly fishing one. So there'll be six in Oregon. Six in Oregon then. And then what are the other states? So what the, so Idaho? Idaho and Washington. And so when is the, when would be in Idaho similar date? So May 13th, there'll be an event in Idaho. Yeah, it won't be May 13th. So let me look. It'll be, uh, so they staggered dates. So if so, and we got qualifiers. I'll get into that in a minute for the West Coast Championship. But but anyway, so let me see Washington's first one. And we'll put a link out. I'm sure at kayakfishingnorthwest.com that probably has all this information, right? Yes, absolutely. And then so 4:15 will be wa- uh, Washington's kickoff at Mason Lake, and then 4:22 will be Black Canyon Reservoir for Idaho. Those would be the kickoff events. And then they then starting in May, there's a couple that are the same dates, but but most of them are all separated. But when you get into the qualifiers, so the first three events in each state are usually qualifiers for the West Coast Championship. And how you get into the West Coast Championship was last year was Clear Lake, California. I was there and the year before that. And then so I qualified both years with mo- a lot of guys. And then this year it's supposed to be at the California Delta in August. So we'll see if we qualify. But the thing is you could do the top 25% of the people that are one of these qualifying events can get into the and qualify for the West Coast Championship. Or you can do three qualifying events and not be in the top 25%. So that leads me to say that if, let's say, this year, I won't be able to do all three because I'm going to a fly um, fishing um, thing in Alaska with my wife in August or actually July. So I will not be able to do the third event at Green Peter. So the first two, I'll have to qualify as in the top 25% of that field to get qualified for the West Coast Championship or do an extra event in another state, which I did last year. I had to go to Idaho and do it might have been Pitt or Walcott. I don't remember. One of those were a qualifying event, or maybe it was Washington. I went to Washington, too. I fish all three states if I have time because I like all the guys in all three states. So I, we just hang out. Like, like the same thing on the veteran thing, but different. You know, you, you, get, you get bonded with certain people. You want to fish with them. But with that said, so you do three qualifying events or you get in the top 25% of one of the qualifying events and you qualify for the West coast championship. Right on. And the West coast championship is same, the same deal. It'd be bringing away, uh, bringing together. Well, California, I'm sure is huge. That's gotta be a gigantic. Yeah. And that's usually a real big event, like Clear Lake. I think, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think it started off like 
120 people were qualified or actually signed up to do the event and it ended up to be like 103 or 109 that actually did the event uh, in Clear Lake, California. The lake's huge. You can hold as many people as you want to put on it, but it was really slow last year. The year before that, it was way better. So I didn't do it very good, but I did catch some fish. So No, this is awesome. So what is it about, you know, because we get into this, we've talked about this before with like Euro nymphing, you know, and, and, and all the, uh, competitive fly fishing, like, what is it about you that keeps you going here where you could just be out, you know, on your own, just kind of floating around, you know, not doing like, why, why the competition? I think that it I always wanted to do it as a youth. So it's like, and, and how this started, it wasn't start, this didn't start with me. So, you know, I have kids too, right? So I have a boy named Mark Jr. that says, Hey dad, let's go bass fishing. Okay, let me get the fly rods. Where do you want to go? He said, no, 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 like we used to. Because I used to take him to Hag when he was a kid. We used to catch a lot of smallmouth and largemouth. So I started with a couple rods. And it, this is funny because I got like, I don't know, 15, 20 fly rods, you know, and all the stuff I invested in that. So I started with a couple rods. We got in tournaments. I said, well, I'll need the rod for this, a rod for that. Now, as we speak, I'm looking at 17 rods for bass fishing. They're gear rods. Gear rods. You know, <laughs> You're about my, equal. You're almost equal. It's crazy. But it, fishing's crazy. But it, it's like you could do other things with money, you know, that are worse things to do. But anyway, it started with Mark Jr. And it was supposed to be a dad-son thing. And it just got bigger. And I got to know people. And I think if you're in the competition, it adds a little more oomph to your fishing. For me, a little more excitement. And you probably get better. You probably actually maybe even get better because the comp, right? That's that's the Euro anglers. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, this is the other thing. You, you hit something on the head that people don't think about. If you know how to gear fish for bass and fly fish for bass, it makes you way better because you got both spectrums and you can, and then, you know, different way to read waters or, you know, depths and water temperatures and are they on top? Are they in the middle? Are they on the bottom? You hit something that's really important on the head. It's like some guys are purists, which are cool if they want to do that. And I've done it. I've done it for over 20 years. But the thing is, is that I'm getting older and sometimes that false casting with shoulders and wear and tear, it, it, it gets, it wears on you. But the thing is, is that I fish, you know, I told, you know, even though Hill and Waters, I said, you know, I, I just discovered that I'm just a fisherman. I started off a, Spinner fisherman on the Deschutes River with my father when I was like eight years old. You know, at Mecca Flats is where I started fishing. I didn't know what the, it was called back, and we called it all kinds of weird names because there was a guy that owned the house, and my dad gave him whiskey to camp there. Yeah, what what'd you call it? What'd you call Mecca back then? I think this is appropriate. We call it fat asses. There was a heavy heavy fellow that. Oh right. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Well, we would camp right by his house. You know, the guy'd have rattlesnakes and frigging cages and stuff. He oh was wow! It's kind of out there. We used to poke it with, would heat up a rod and put it in there, and the rattlesnake would snap at it. It was kind of damn. He would have pet rattlesnakes. Yeah, I don't know if they were pets. I don't think you can have a pet snake. I don't even think pet snakes are pet snakes. But he would have pet in like a cage. He'd next- have rattlesnakes in cages. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's intense. That is so. That's the big guy. That's the the fat guy. Yeah, the big guy. So we wow. didn't have we didn't have waiters and stuff back then either. You know, people they didn't I don't know, I'm not sure how your dad had you guys fishing, but we didn't have waiters, we didn't have nothing. We slept under a tarp. My dad had a big old truck tarp. There were like ten people in there, we'd fold it over, everybody would come up in there. 
see, Mark, that's the thing about the old school. We always joke about, it, right? Because it's like, oh, our kids, you know, they don't understand it. But I mean, my dad, I've told this story before, but I mean, when I was like 12 or 13, um, so this probably would have been in the mid 80s or something, you know, he'd be, maybe he was even younger, he'd do his guide trips. He'd go down on a trip. I'd be on the guide trip, right? Because I'd be there all summer with him. And then he'd leave me over like two days over the weekend until he came back for the next trip. And I was only, I was a young kid. Yeah. And so he's like, all right, go save the camp, you know? And it was like, I mean, I couldn't imagine leaving my daughters on the river by themselves. Not anymore. Same thing. I mean, I mean, it's like he'd hand you a rod, he'd, he'd, he'd tie a lure on it or whatever. It says, here, go fish. And we would, we'd run up and down Mecca flats all up and down there. And there'd be a whole bunch of us. But then again, you know, it's like we would, and every time I'd break off, you know, I, I think I just wanted his attention. I'd go have him tie the knot. And I think I really knew how to tie it. Say, hey, can you tie my knot? Broke it off again. But, yeah. How did you do that with your kids? How did you get your kids? How did you plant the seed with them on the fishing? I think I, I eased them into it. Just like Sean, my youngest, uh, he was like, I don't know, six or seven. I'd hook a fish down on the umpqua for him and let him reel it in. Same thing with Mark and Josh. I have three boys, and I have one daughter that likes to fish, Samantha. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I have four kids out of my six. I have six children. You have six kids? Yeah. The one Holy cow. The Amazing. Best. Yeah, I do. Yep. I started young, so I'm, what am I, 62? So Mark's 42. I started young. So Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, I, I always forget that. Yeah, I knew you told me that before. Six kids. So that must be pretty cool having all those kids because it's like – you know, like family, right? We started off this thing talking about family, but I mean, how is that for you? Do you just love, could you have 12 kids and be loving it too? I could. Well, I need a village. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, I got eight grandkids already and I got, actually I have two greats already because oldest grandson, my daughter started early is right behind Sean, which he's like, Sean's 23. So Alex is 22 and June, he'll be 23. Where are, the, are your kids? So you got these six kids. Are they spread around the country, around the Northwest? No, they're all here. They're, I mean, there's, I got one in, two in St. Helens, um, one downtown. I got one over Northeast. Where's the other one? The other one, and two of them are in, like, one's Hillsboro, one's Beaver. That's cool. That is, that's cool that everybody's there. That's pretty amazing. You know, we see each other when we can, but they got lives. You know, they grow. You know, it's like being a father. You know, you say, hey, you're older now. You know, you got to figure it out. I know. Yeah. I think about that, about my deal, you know, like I was saying, we just had a, you know, family member pass away, you know, uh, and, um, you know, you start thinking about that stuff. You're like, wow, you know, this could happen quick. And that's part of the reason why I started the the podcast where I'm kind of trying to do that tracking of, you know, the storytelling there is that, I mean, my dad, we both know my dad, right? I mean, he's, he's, uh, in his mid eighties, he hasn't fished in a while now. And, uh, you know, and he's still doing pretty good. But, you know, he's, he's slowed down a lot and it's one of those things where, man, I just kick myself every, every time I'm like, man, I need to go over there and see him more often, but I just struggle with it because it's like life is there, you know? Yeah. I, I, I call him uh, periodically. Do you? As you know, or I thought you knew, yeah, but yeah, I just check on him and say, Hey, how are you doing? I invite him every year. I go in the Elm Club, but I know he's getting older and it's hard for him to get down there and get around. You know, so I don't. I don't necessarily want to bother him. I just want to say, Hey man, I'm here if you need me or, you know, that type thing. Cause I really, I really admire your dad and I really respect him and what he's done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you think it is about my dad, what he's done that makes it so, um, I don't know. I, I I'm in the inside, right? So it's hard for me, but what do you think about my dad? I mean, he had the fly shop. He had some things. What, what do you think is respectable about his thing? His drive. 
when you when you have when you have a drive, you know, the same thing I talk to my kids about. If you, you can either like me, I'm a disabled vet, three hip surgeries, bad vertebrae, this that I can sit on my butt and get chunky, or I get off my butt and do something. You know, I write articles when I can, but your dad's a heck of a writer and, and very, very commendable, very good at what he does. You know, I know he's a teacher and things, but he and his fishing, he's very well, very well um versed on it. I mean, he's a great fisherman. You know, I mean, I know he's getting old, but he was great caster, great fisherman. I mean, I taught him things about bass, but once he got it, he was he was catching the heck out of him. So that's right. I always feel like the older generation, like we're talking, we're talking about these old guys, but my dad was just, you know, he was like a pretty much a professional athlete and you know what I mean? Like almost baseball, basketball, right? Went to university of Portland at the highest levels. And, uh, and it seems like, you know, the next generation we lost a little bit, right? We weren't quite as good. Oh yeah. It seems like that's the way it goes sometimes. I don't know. Well, they don't realize, you know, I mean, not everybody, but I'm just saying in general that people don't realize how tough people were back then. I mean, how, how much they had to endure, you know, no, we didn't have phones and directions on our phones and we didn't have waiters. We didn't have much of anything. We had metal connections on rods and this and that. I mean, it's like tough people. You know, I remember coming out, it was winter, snow on the ground, the way my family were, we just jumped in in jeans and they don't get warm. You know, you come out, you're freezing, but you just do it. You suck it up. You grinch your teeth and do it. That's the same thing. That's the mentality of like a, a, a military guy, basically, or your dad or my dad. You know, you suck it up and do it. You know, I mean, you can bellyache and complain or whatever you want to do, but nothing's going to change unless you go do it. I know. One of my favorite, um, there's this book, I've said this before, I always love going back to this one, but it's called The, um, the War of Art, right? Um, and not the art of war, but the war of art. And Stephen Pressfield talks about, he makes the analogy to basically the, the challenges that people face to be successful. And he talks about how you have to be like a Marine. You got to be like, just ready for the pain. You got to come back day after day. You got to remember it's going to be failure after failure. You know, like he was, a, he was an author and he, he wrote, you know, like 20 or 30 books that all failed. And then finally he wrote the legend of Bagger Vance. And right. And it, it got him into the, the place. But, you know, that's the thing, like anything people should realize it always think about that because like, it's not easy to be successful and great at things, right? You gotta, you gotta like be in the, in the trenches. Do you feel that that's kind of the, your outlook too? That's exactly right. So, you know, there's mind over matter. I mean, I mean, if, if I me this, this is how I'll deal with this is that if I suck into the pain and let the pain control me, I won't, nothing's going to change for me. Or if somebody is struggling, like to say in college or anything of that, that nature to where they just say, okay, it's too hard, they're never going to achieve it unless they keep trying. Well, it's like, you know, when I was doing arts way back when, you know, the martial arts stuff, is that, you know, when I taught that stuff, I said, you know, if, if somebody's on you, pounding on you, are you going to lay there and take it? Or are you going to respond and say, okay, this, this ain't working, I'm going to have to do something to defend myself or I'm going to have to read more. I'm going to have to study more. I'm going to have to train more. You know, there's, it's up to individuals to me, you know, as I, you know, relate to my grandkids, kids, it's like, it's up to you. I mean, it's up to you on how good you're going to be in the United States. And we've got a lot of people coming in here. Yeah. You can be great here or you can be not great here. It's kind of how you want to do things for yourself. 
you know, it's all, it's all self-motivation and your drive. And I always talk about drive because if you don't have drive, yeah, it's going to be hard on it, no matter who you are, you know? That's right. Yeah, the drive is a key. So what is your drive? Like, what keeps you going strong and all this stuff? The excitement or, or the, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, need for me to get out in the woods in the wild because that's how I grew up. You know, my dad was outdoorsy and this and that. And there's a certain amount of excitement, as I said, and just to go do it. And, you know, the challenges of it, I think, is the challenge for me. You know, it's the competition. Yeah, but it's more the challenge of me versus the fish. And I watched uh, or the challenge of me versus whatever I'm doing. I'm retired now. But then again, I'm not retired because I can't just I can't stay idle. I got to go. Do stuff. My guess is you're as busy now as you were probably when you were working or whatever. Maybe more in some ways because, well, and you know, it's like one of my daughters. She said, "Well, I got this." And I said, "You know, I mean, I worked my butt off when I worked, you know, and I, I was never a lazy guy. I'm not a lazy guy now. So it's like, well, you got to, you know, have your kid go with you, or how are you going to train him, or this or that. When I hear certain things, it's like you got to have that drive to do it. But it's more about you know, the training of your, yourself to be motivated, you know, basically. And right there, I've always been motivated. Your dad's motivated. He's very motivated. I'm sure he's still now. I haven't seen him in a while, but I've talked to him. Yep. Yeah. He, no, he still you know, is. He's still writing and doing things. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Well, I think, you know, the bass thing was something I wanted to touch on. I think we're not going to be able to go fully into it. Um, I mean, just because there's so much. I mean, there's all the gear side. Like, what do you go when you, you know, where are you getting your education on bass? Is this all self-taught or are you, you know, there's some some folks out there you've been following? No, it's not. It's not self-taught. So I learn. And that's another thing I guess I want to say is that you don't stop learning, right? I mean, I might know how to throw a crankbait or a fly rod, and I'm always watching different stuff on YouTube or new new techniques. Or YouTube, I think nowadays is a blessing for a lot of things. You can learn how to cook. You can do a lot of things on that. So I watch a lot of YouTube, and I listen to people. I don't just try to blurt out that hey, I'm the best this and that. I don't do that. I'm saying I, I want to learn. Right? I'm not. A, I'm not an old dog yet, even though I'm an old salty dog. But I'm not an <laughs> old dog yet. You know. Yeah, but it's like I learn all the time, and I think that's the key. Is if you keep learning and trying to improve yourself, no matter who you are or where you're going, then that's a blessing for yourself, and and, and it warms your heart to know that you're accomplishing something. Yeah, yeah, it does. What's this? Uh, you mentioned a trip up to Alaska. What, what's that a trip looking like? Yeah, so I uh, actually Jim Teeny referred this. Um, oh, nice. I was looking for a place to go in Alaska for me and my wife to go fly fishing. And he referred the Duncan brothers. Which, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So we, we opted, we talked about it. We talked and I hung up the phone after talking to one of the Duncan fellows and Beth looks at me and says, you know, we're not going to take money and this and that with us. Let's just do it. So we signed up to go in July to, uh, we go to Anchorage to Bethel and then take a puddle jumper out to what they call lower base. And we'll be out there for a week fly fishing with these guys on the booning. Yeah. I, I, yeah. They've got a few camp. Well, they've got some cool stuff because they have uh, we did an, a recent episode with uh, George cook and he was talking about some of the history of the Duncans because I had that kid. My dad used to do that too, right back in the day, the Duncans and they're, and I think the kids are still running, but they have, they have some cool stuff. They've got a camp. 
They've got, um, I'm not sure if they have a lodge, but yeah, they, they do some like, are you guys going for rainbows or for Chinook or what are you going for? So when we go up in, in July, there's going to be, uh, Chinooks will be in the tail end, but there'll be a lot of sockeye, chum, rainbows, grayling, maybe pick up a silver or two, but that's basically it. And they hit them on mouses and mice and it's going to be a, it's going to be a hoot, but there's a video on it on YouTube. If you look up fly fishing, Alaska with the hush brothers, hushin brother, hushin, whatever that site is that going to but it shows exactly the trip that I'll be going on me and Beth or Bethan. Oh, good. We'll, we'll get a link out in the show notes to that as well. So we can take a look at that video. I'll send it to you when we're done. Okay. Yeah. Send it to me and we'll, we'll put in the show notes. That we can look at it, but it's actually, I'm going on that trip and we're excited about it. It'd be different. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm self-sufficient at fishing. I'll hire a guide periodically because either I know him or I want Beth to catch fish. Um, other than something I don't do a lot of, because I don't do a lot of salmon steelhead fishing, even though I've caught plenty of salmon on flies. I have not caught a steelhead on a fly yet. I've got them on gear, but I don't really pursue it. You know, it's that I like to catch fish. I don't like to go looking for them or have to wait a week or two or a month. I, and God bless them, people who do that, but I can't do it. I just have a hard time. I got to go catch fish, man. I know steelhead is one of those. There's the, well, you talked about the, the steel water stuff. I mean, you got muskie was another one of those species. That's like, does that have any interest to you? Um, yeah, actually. And I've been offered by some of the guide friends I got. This won't be me paying out of pocket. It's when they have free time going to look at stuff. I just go with them. But yeah, muskie is a big interest for me. I know we got them up at, uh, what is that? Mayfield up in yeah, Washington. Up yeah. And I got yeah. a buddy. Um, from Washington that goes up there and catches them. He's a great guy. He's good at fishing. He's a fly fisher. I mean, these huge flies for those things, over a foot long for those flies. Yeah, it's really cool. Muskie's another one of those species, kind of like steelhead, right? You got to put your time in and you got to get that one chance. Yeah, I still steelhead fish, but I don't I don't put in the time of the guys that love it. I, I don't love it. I mean, I like it, but I don't love it. Bass, on the other hand, I love. So, I mean, we all have we all have a species that we kind of fall in love with. I got choked with trout when I was a kid by my dad, and I then I then I started catching these weird looking fish at Hag Lake a long time ago, where I made up my one of my flies that is in your dad's book, actually. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Bringo bugger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. The bringo. Yeah. Practical fly fisher. But I was watching bass chase perch and it's like, okay, I can tie something that looks like that. And I did. And by golly, that thing still works. That's cool. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes to the, uh, well, hope maybe we'll find that the practical fly fisher. I think that was one of my dad's first books. Yeah. I was, I'm in, I'm in that one. Yeah. yeah. And you're in that one. Good. So we'll do that. And, uh, no, this is a lot. This is good. Uh, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. How about we take it out of here with our, our two minute drill? We'll get, we got a, a few rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Well, wrap do her, man. Let's go. All right, let's do it. All right. So, um, first of all, I always love to start off with a little multimedia on uh, music. So, uh, do you have a what, what's your type of music band, or give us something we can listen to on the way out of here? Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, taking care of business. All right, nice, nice. All right, perfect. Um, what is the so with your fly rod? You've only got one rod you can use for smallmouth bass fishing. What is it? Length and weight. Uh, it would be my, uh, well, it'd be actually my six weight Thomas and Thomas zone. Okay. Nine foot. Nine foot. Yep. Nine foot. Okay, great. What is your one, uh, one bass tip? If somebody's out for smallies, they, they're kind of maybe new to it and they're heading out their first time. What do you tell them? Be patient. Yep. 
be patient. So does that mean so you're on a spot, just stick tight? Yeah, because eventually you're going to find them. And once you find them, then you kind of hold in there. But sometimes searching, because I'll move around. Small mouths move more than large mouths. Large mouths are more sluggish. I, I don't think they're lazy. It's just the way they are. They're more of a warmer water, water fish and less current. Small mouths are definitely more current. And they move around chasing, and they'll chase shad all over the place or bait fish they're chasing. The large mouth kind of hold and wait more. Yeah, they wait more. Okay. And what about your trip? So you're doing this Alaska thing. Do you have another big bucket list trip you want to put together uh, down the line? Uh, not yet, but we're working on stuff like that. Um, I think they uh, eventually go fishing with David Stewart. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe we could do, maybe if you guys, we've talked about this Umqua thing, but uh, I think this bass thing would be fun, actually. I would love to get out there on a day with you in a kayak and, and do exactly what we've been talking about today. Well, maybe there's, that's something. There's good news. Beth has one that sets here most of the time, and by golly, you can jump in it. And then I have, uh, just real fast, I have, I have paddle yaks, too, for like the Umqua, so you don't break your drives. Oh, okay. So all the, you know, because it's a moving river and it's small, we don't take the big hobies down and we take paddle kayaks. Paddle kayaks. Sure. Sure. Okay. Good. Paddle kayaks where you can have your gear and like you can do overnight camping and stuff. You can if you want, but normally we'll go A to B and go back down to where we're camped anyway, like some Flores Rapids or Big K, wherever you're at. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that. Yeah. We've done the drift boat thing over the years and that's always been fun, but I think kayaks would be a lot of fun too. Yeah, I go to Sawyer's and it's on. It's on, uh, when is it? 8th to the 11th, I think, of June. Sawyer's wrap. It'll be, and then Salmon Creek Fly Fishers will be there. The veterans will be invited. Any family will be invited. Um, We'll be there. Oh, you'll be there. So this is it. So, okay. So let's follow up. We got a couple things to follow up on there and then we'll we'll get the kayaks going. And, uh, Cool, Mark. Well, that's all I have. That that wraps up uh, that wraps up our little drill here. I mean, uh, I, I feel pretty good about this. We've been talking about this a long time, catching up. It was fun to talk a little about the family at the start and make that connection uh, to you. And uh, yeah, I think we'll just kind of keep in touch here. And I appreciate your time today and shedding the light on everything we talked about. And looking forward to seeing you at uh, Albany. You'll see me in Albany. And by golly, thank you very much. And hopefully it comes out well. And we just had a great conversation and a lot of information. So... There it is, wetflyswing.com slash 454. You can head over right now to that URL, 454, and get some of the links and uh, and check out what we talked about. Even that Skeena Space School, uh, you can check out. We'll have a link there where you can join and enter. Um, actually, you can join and just, just uh, get some information on that trip. Skeena Space School Lodge right now. It's also at wetflyswing.com slash school. And you can see if we have any availability left on that trip, and I'll fill you in on the details. Skeena River doesn't get any better than that. It's been a number of years since I've been there, and uh, and I'm excited to get back this year and hopefully see you up at the lodge and uh, on the Skeena River hanging out with some, uh, some amazing water and some amazing fishing. Okay, let's do a quick listener shout-out before we get out of here. Dale Cullum. Dale reached out and said he lives in British Columbia, Canada, and he said uh, his favorite species, he's got a three-way tie here. He's got uh, rainbows, cutthroat, and bulls. So all three. He couldn't choose one, so he just picked all three. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Dale also says, love the podcast. Keep doing what you are doing. Thanks, Dale, for checking in. I appreciate your support on this podcast and for uh, dropping a line quickly there. On email, look forward to catching up with you soon. If you want to get a shout on this podcast, reach out to me, Dave at wetflyswing.com. Anytime and let me know where you're coming from. 
Especially if it's been a while or if you've never checked in with me, you can do that right now. It's really easy. Uh, social media, if you're out there, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. Um, I would love to hear from you and just let me know if you've been listening, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you're listening to the very end and haven't connected, uh, now's the chance. Uh, we've been talking to some people around Europe, which has been amazing. I know I know there's a few uh, people out there that are listening as well. So if you get a chance, would love to hear from you. It's what keeps me going strong, knowing people are are uh, listening and loving what we're putting out there. Let's take a quick look where we are heading next right now. Let's see where we're heading next. Where are we heading next on this podcast? Okay, what are we heading next? Wow, okay, so next week we are jumping into another amazing week. So we've got, uh, we got a cat skills episode. We're going to go deep on the cat skills next week. That's going to be a big one. And then uh, later that week, we got Craig Richardson on uh, from the Euro School. Craig's going to be one of our guides on the Euro School uh, this year. And uh, if you're on that trip, you don't want to miss this episode because Craig, along with Pete Erickson and his team, Craig is going to be one of the guys. And I can tell you right now, this episode is going to be epic. He is uh, bringing some tips uh, that you're going to need, and he digs in a little more to the trip. So this is exciting for that. And, uh, and also, yeah, even if you're not going on that trip, um, always good if you're interested in Euro um, nymphing. This is the one to check out. And I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, and we will check in uh, next week with you. And uh, and I hope you right now are having a great morning, a great afternoon, or a great evening wherever you are in the world. And if you get a chance to connect with me on the water or online, that would be great. But until then, have a good one. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.